Good morning, everybody. Welcome back to a series that's a tough one for me to teach because it's hard for me, and I know it's hard for all of us, to love them anyway. Uh, Last week, we looked at they disagree with you, love them anyway. Next week, we're going to be looking at they hurt you, love them anyway. Today, we're looking at they oppose you, love them anyway. That, just by the titles, we are uh, quite aware of how difficult this series is. And yet, it's exactly what we need at this time. Uh, We've been told by Jesus a very radical message to love our enemies. And this radical message is revolutionary. And I believe it's only possible to do this supernaturally. It's extraordinary what he's calling us to do as we follow him. I find it difficult uh, to do. By myself, I fail. But in the power of Jesus, I find that he meets me there. And I hope that you will discover some of these truths to be very helpful to you at this time. On our screens, we've been seeing through our news feeds, whether it's through print or through uh, social media as things are posted and reposted, and we parrot back whatever things we perhaps agree with or disagree with and say so. A lot of polarization, a lot of disagreement, a lot of opposition, uh, and a lot of hurt, uh, violence even, that's taking place. And so, What is the answer to a world that is embroiled in such uh, fear and such darkness? And I believe this is a large piece of that answer. Having said that, though, you might think that this is a new thing, and it's not. This kind of uh, need for this command to love anyway has been with us uh, from the beginning of time. And just to illustrate that, I want us to kind of jump back in time about 500 years. This is after the uh, Protestant Reformation and some of the difficulties that were there. Um, We want to jump back into time at a particular place in the Netherlands. And so just by comparing something long ago, I think we'll see how pertinent this idea is. The key gentleman that this story revolves around, his name was Dirk Willems, and Dirk Willems was uh, baptized as an adult. Now, you would think that's a good thing, but at that time, that was a controversial thing. The established church of the time, uh, even after the Protestant Reformation for quite some time was still mainly baptizing infants. But a group of people began to be convinced that baptism was really an expression of a commitment that's being made by believers when they profess their faith in Jesus Christ. So when Dirk Willems was baptized as an adult, he was labeled by those who were against him an Anabaptist. An Anabaptist, the word means uh, a rebaptizer and a growing group of people began to be rebaptizers. They considered their baptism as infants to be uh, the valid form of baptism, and these rebaptizers were heretics. 
Dirk Willems not only was baptized himself, but soon in his own house, many other adults were being baptized as well. And at a time when the church and the state were not separate, Dirk Willems was arrested. He was imprisoned in a palace of sorts. It was more like a castle, and it had a moat. And in that imprisonment, he was given uh, prison rations and was nearly emaciated and light in, in his, and this was not going well for him. So he was able to plot an escape plan, and by tying rags together, he escaped out of this uh, castle that had turned into a prison in the Netherlands and uh, got out of the castle. A guard saw him, and Dirk Willems uh, crossed a frozen moat, uh, kind of more like a pond, and was getting away from the guard that was in chase. The guard, who was much heavier, fell through the ice on that pond moat and started uh, floundering in the icy waters and crying out for help. And Dirk Willem stopped in his tracks, returned across the ice, and helped this guard uh, and saved his life. However, because of that decision, he was recaptured. He was thrown back into imprisonment. And eventually, he was burned at the stake for his faith that this way of baptism, which I agree with, that baptism has always meant the expression of the believer as he's entering into a covenant with a death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, is a proper way to be baptized. Since that time, of course, there's been whole movements and denominations in agreement, at least on that point, and many, many people are being baptized as a profession of their faith, and it's no longer just an expression of the parent's faith for the child, but expression of the believer's faith. Now, I want you to think about that. 500 years ago, right within the church, the disagreements and oppositions were so heated that people were burned at the stake. How can we get to that kind of distortion from Jesus' teaching about loving your enemies? And sometimes we're called to love one another by Jesus the way he loved us. Other times we're called by Jesus to love our neighbor and sometimes we're called to love our enemies, and sometimes, as we mentioned last week, uh, one person can be all three of those, neighbor, brother, and acting like an enemy. So this is a, a really important uh, message for us to consider. Why does Jesus command us to love our enemies? I just want to be up front before we jump into a lot of scripture uh, today together. So let me read some thoughts that I've put down here. Jesus came to establish his kingdom in a dark and rebel world. He calls us to repent of our own attempts to rule our own dark kingdoms and to trust him and follow him in his kingdom using his divinely powerful weapons in a radical 
and supernaturally empowered revolution. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world, but divinely powerful to transform an enemy into a friend. Loving our enemy can reduce the ranks of the kingdom of darkness and add them to the ranks of the kingdom of God, one by one. Loving our enemy is for our benefit so that we do not become like the enemy of God and everything good. By loving those who oppose us, we become light in a dark world. We shine hope for our divided, diseased, dark world of hurt and hate. So this is a really important topic. How is it possible that people who love Jesus Christ coming from different interpretations might come to the place of such disagreement and opposition that they literally are enemies of each other and yet we've seen it often throughout history. I was pondering that of course and preparing for this message and I was out near some cliffs on a hike and an image came to mind, the image of the shepherd and the sheep. And I pictured some sheep falling off a cliff and standing in an outcropping, stuck, bleeding out their concern because there's no way out of their predicament. They couldn't figure out how to get up to the top and they couldn't figure out how to get down to the bottom. They're stuck on an outcropping on the middle of a cliffside. I think it's a really good picture of what it feels like right now for each of us. We feel stuck. We, we want to see things different than where we are at, and we can't figure out how to climb up to the top. We can't figure out how to climb to the bottom, and, and we feel quite stuck and quite frightened. Given a scenario like that, there's two things that come to mind, and I want to bring them to our attention by focusing on two scriptures where Jesus knows exactly what it feels like to be bit by the sheep he's trying to help. In John 1, 9 through 11, we read this, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, it's talking about Jesus, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own. He came to his own people, the people with the prophecies about his coming, the people who were anticipating the coming of the king, and he shows up and he comes like a shepherd to help them out of their predicament. And yet, in coming to help them, here's what happens. But his own did not receive him. They not only did not receive him, they rejected him. They not only did not receive him and reject him, they crucified him. Sheep bite. And yet, when we go to the Old Testament, classic passage on the Good Shepherd, there's a line in Psalm 23 that reads this way. Verse 3, he guides me along the right paths for his namesake. And so as I was picturing this image of lambs that are frightened on the outcropping, I was picturing the good shepherd who knows the path out of the predicament is trying to coax a sheep to come follow him and the sheep biting at his hand 
because he's leading them along the right paths. I know what that feels like. There's disagreement at whatever decision we make, whatever we feel is the right path, prayerfully considering which path to take as a church and how to navigate the outcropping that we find ourselves stuck on. And so I know what that feels like, and yet I need to do just like Jesus and love the sheep anyway. How do you do that? I myself am a sheep. Sometimes I'm the one that feels like biting, biting back. Perhaps it's because I'm frightened. Perhaps it's because I have pride and I get self-defensive. Perhaps I feel like I'm cornered. I don't want to be like that. I want to be like Jesus. So how do we do that? We're going to read now a lengthy section that just expands the notion of loving our enemies. Just to be clear, this is a powerful teaching of Jesus. In Luke 6, 27 through 36, we read this. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, Turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your father is merciful. (laughs) This is quite a teaching. It's radical. It's revolutionary. I, I dare say it is only livable supernaturally. Love your enemies, verse 27. Do good to those who hate you, verse 27. Bless those who curse you, verse 28. Pray for those who mistreat you, verse 28. If someone slaps your cheek, turn to them the other also, verse 29. If they take your coat, give them your shirt too, verse 29. We skip down to verse 35. Be kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful. Then it gives why. Because your father is merciful. We already gave the why last week. Be for other people because Jesus was for you. Love other people Because Jesus loved you even when you were far from him. He was merciful to you when you deserved no mercy. He died for you when you were his enemy. That's the why. Point number one, how? How in the world do we do this? 
We're going to go to a passage that doesn't answer this directly, but it's a powerful passage. It's all a prayer of Jesus. It's called this high priestly prayer by some. It's found in John chapter 17, and here's how this prayer begins. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. Now, how is Jesus going to be glorified? He's asking his Father to glorify him so that he could glorify his Father. And he's talking about the hour has come. Jesus knows what's coming. He's praying this the night before he's going to be crucified. And he's praying that in this hour, he would be glorified and that his Father would be glorified in the very act of the cross. From Jesus' perspective, the cross, what he was about to do, this ultimate sacrifice of love, where he was going to die for our sins, is a glory that is going to be his glory. His sacrifice of love is going to glorify him and bring his heavenly Father glory. And we think of it as a glory. Oh, what a glorious thing that our sins could be forgiven that he would take upon himself our sins to, to set us free, that he would be buried and our sins would be removed from us, and by the power of the Spirit, he would be raised, and so that by that same power, the power of the Spirit, we would be raised into a new life. Oh, what a glory the cross is. But sometimes we forget something. It doesn't stop with Jesus. So I have a question for you, and the question reads this way. Does what Jesus believed would glorify him horrify us? Because he calls us to love the way we saw that glory. He calls us to deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and live a sacrificially loving life for our enemies. And it could mean to the point of our own death, the way Jesus loved to the point of a sacrificial death where he's willing to lay his life out in total humility for an enemy. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. He says from the very cross he dies on. And he died for you and me while we were still sinners. It's not because we cleaned ourselves up that he dies for us. He dies for us while we're not cleaned up so that we can get cleaned up. And he says, I want you now to follow me. And that's a horrifying thought. What? Go to the cross and be tortured and experience that disagreement to the point that it hurts us and could hurt us to the point of death? Yes, he even says, love those who persecute you. Wow. How? Is that even possible? Let's jump down further in his prayer to verse 11, where he says, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. So we're ready for point number two. Become one with Jesus. 
when we're answering the question, how is this possible? Something supernatural has to take place. And what Jesus did on the cross made it possible for this supernatural thing to take place, that our life and his life could be merged into a unity, a oneness that creates a supernatural effect in our life to where the way he loves can be the way we love. How does that work? Jesus prayed for the answer to the disagreement, the division, the polarization, the opposition. And he says, the answer to this is oneness with me. The answer to this is going to come by way of the cross. The only way that you're going to experience a oneness with me is by faith. When you accept that what I have done on the cross is absorb your sin and take it away and take it into myself so that I can give you my righteousness, that you can walk away with my righteousness undeservedly, and that our lives merge. And as I am resurrected, you are resurrected. As I am crucified, your old life is crucified. As I am buried, your old life is buried with me. And in our oneness, we come out with the resurrection power that raised me from the dead. Become one with Jesus. How do we love those who disagree with us or those who oppose us? Point number three, the Holy Spirit empowers us to follow Jesus. Now, to get at this, you could start earlier in John, and I would recommend you do so. Pick up around chapter 14 and read all the way through 17, this powerful prayer. But in this prayer itself, we see the Holy Spirit very clearly even though he's not referred to by name or title. So let's keep reading John 17, 20 through 23. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's you and, you and me. Way back then, the day before he was crucified, he didn't pray just for his disciples then. He prayed for you and me, those of us who believe in Jesus because of the message of the disciples he trained up. Verse 21, that all of them, that's us, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me. Now, isn't that interesting? At the beginning of the prayer, he's praying that God would glorify him, that he might glorify his Father. But here he's talking about a glory that he's already given us, that he gave him, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought into complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Now, this unity does not mean that we all think exactly alike. This unity is deeper than that. We don't agree on everything, but we are united in Jesus. He's made us uniquely to think uniquely and we learn from each other. It's like we're refractors, reflectors of his glory like mirrors or diamonds reflecting and refracting the light of his glory when we're cleaned up and the mud is washed off. 
And each personality reflects and refracts different aspects. The danger is when we start attacking the other difference without in union, seeing how we're still one, even though we might disagree on some matters, we begin to cover up with the mud and we become the enemy ourselves. We reflect the enemy of God, the adversary, Satan. That's what his name means, adversary. We reflect the adversary more than reflect Jesus, who is bringing all of us from every different race, every different cultural situation, every different perspective, every unique makeup into a oneness with him where he washes us clean and brings us closer into this oneness where all extra baggage drops away and someday when we see him face to face, we will be completely one. But right now, we each have a oneness by faith in him. And we're called to love one another even while we're in disagreement. Love one another even while we might find ourselves on opposing positions. We are still to love one another because that reflects a love that's like God who is love in himself. And how does that come about? It comes about because of our union with Jesus. Because of the cross, we were washed clean. And because we were washed clean by what Jesus did, God himself places within us this glory, the Holy Spirit, his life, the very glory that allowed Jesus and his human body to be in his Father and his Father to be in him, in his human incarnation, this union of Jesus with the Father where he could hear from the Father and say what the Father said and do what the Father does. He, he himself said to his disciples, you will do greater things than you have seen me doing because they're gonna experience that same oneness with the Father through the Spirit which he has demonstrated. Jesus is the anointed one. He's the King who is fully anointed by the Spirit of God and he distributes that anointing power, the Holy Spirit, because of his crucifixion, burial, and resurrection, so that we can experience a union with him that is so supernatural, it transforms us from the inside as we draw near to Jesus and learn how to love like Jesus supernaturally. That love pops through. Let me be honest with you. I have not been able to live this out consistently, but I have seen it pop out from me. And I want to draw so close to Jesus that I'm better equipped and better trained and more humble and able to turn against my own pride and deny myself and the things that I want and the th how I think I'm right and, and love even when I feel my position is right and your position is wrong, but still love you because you love Jesus or love you because the grace of Jesus can transform you to love Jesus and love you out of the enemy position into the kingdom, out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. This is a deep kind of oneness. It's so deep he says, I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one, I and them, you and me, so that 
will be in complete unity, then everybody out there that doesn't know Jesus sees that, will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. The Father gets glory. Jesus gets glory when we love them anyway. In John 17, 18, right within the prayer, he says, as you sent me into the world, I have set them into the world. <laughs> How can I summarize this? A famous nugget in the New Testament is John 3, 16, that God so loved the world, he sent Jesus. But then Jesus says, we're gonna be able to do greater things that you have seen, even I do, because within the body of Christ now, the church, it's not just one body, Jesus. Now the body of Christ, the church, is many bodies in oneness, the one body of Christ, doing great things all over the globe. The same love of Jesus is transferred into our lives in our oneness that now we are loving them anyway all over the globe. A revolution takes place. And then he sends us the same way the Father sent him. So we, the body of Christ, the church, are sent now. We usually think in terms of coming to church. No, we are sent now, going to make disciples. We gather to be fueled and equipped and go to love them anyway and make disciples and love each other in such a way that they see something unique in us. And so we finish with this. Love them anyway. This is not impossible. This is imperative. If we claim to be in the kingdom, in allegiance to our king, we have been commanded to love them anyway, the same way he loved us anyway. The only way I know how to do this is to train you and teach you to draw near to Jesus and keep drawing near to Jesus and get so near to Jesus that the life of Jesus in you comes through. That you're filled with the Spirit and the Spirit's rule, which is the kingdom reign, reigning with goodness, reigning with the love and the joy and the peace, the order of God. The kingdom reigns in us. We're not just waiting to get to the kingdom of heaven. We're getting the kingdom of heaven in us, being fit and made more fit for the kingdom of heaven. And we're living this out by faith, supernaturally, and we see the Spirit of God more and more helping us to love the unlovely, to love those who hurt us, to love those who disagree with us, and to point people to the love that is allowing us to do this. Love them anyway. Would you pray with me? Father, this is a difficult message. It's a difficult message for me to live out. It's a difficult message for any of us to live out. In fact, it is impossible apart from abiding in you, remaining in you, and you remaining in us. Apart from you, we can do nothing. That's what you said. And so we come to you. We thank you for your amazing gift at the cross. We thank you for bringing the kingdom to our lives, that you reign and rule right inside of us, that we thrive inside of you, that we experience a oneness in you and you and us, and that comes through in a kingdom order 
of beauty and joy and love and peace and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Oh, that it would be more. That people would see you in us more. Lord, I pray that you touch the hearts of each one of us who recognizes that we were unkind and not loving anyway, and that we would humble ourselves and repent and look to a more loving approach, even when we don't feel it. Change our hearts. And Lord, I pray for others who this just seems so foreign, so strange, that they would draw near to you and, and repent as the kingdom is here. Turn away from the kingdom of self and turn to you in the kingdom of God and allow you to reign in them. Take up your throne in their lives, made possible through Jesus. So help them to reach out to you in their own fumbling words, asking you to be savior and to talk to others who know what that means and to grow from this day forward, to grow in love, to be part of the answer instead of the problem. We thank you in Jesus' name. Hope to see you next week for the conclusion of Love Them Anyway.